This is What the FC. I'm Will Martin. And I'm Matt McCutcheon. MLS is weird, and we love a good story. Let's go. Welcome back to What the FC. You are listening to episode 8 of the podcast. Today we're going to be talking about college soccer. A little bit of college soccer reform. What is its place in the American soccer pyramid and the American soccer hierarchy? There's a lot of discussions surrounding this in uh, the current media, uh, in the specifically the American soccer media. Um, so we figured we would bring some interview guests on for the very first time, get their perspectives, play some interview footage for you guys, and uh, let me and Matt have a wide-ranging discussion about what we think we should be doing with college soccer in the States. So, excited for this one, Matt? Yes, sir. All right, let's get straight into it, okay? We're going to take you straight into the interviews here. We really want to base this episode around our interview footage, and me and Matt will have uh, some really good conversations on each side of those interviews. So, first up, we brought on DJ Short, who is a former uh, D2 assistant coach at Queens University of Charlotte. He was there for over 10 years after completing a four-year playing career at the same college. Uh, full disclosure, Matt and I both played underneath DJ. Yep. Uh, he helped recruit both of us. So we have a very good relationship with DJ. It was very easy to get him to come on the podcast. Uh, and I was able to interview him one night and we had a really, really great conversation and uh, we really enjoyed it. So I started off by asking him, DJ, do you think that college and the college environment prepares kids for a professional career? Does it help vault them into that professional career? Is the training environment right? All those sorts of things. And uh, he had a really interesting perspective on it that we'll play for you now. So I'm a big fan of college soccer. I really am. I think it's something wonderful and, and obviously it's brought a lot of joy to me in my life. Now, do I think college soccer prepares the top players for professional game? I think from the level I was coaching at division two level for a kid to go play at a professional level. I think it's a very, very big jump. I, I really do. Um, you know, the NCAA has these restrictions on us, you know, in terms of what we can do with the team while we're in season, what we can do with the team, you know, while we're in our spring season, what we can do with the team, you know, out of season. So those restrictions, some of them are needed, I think, but also it definitely, it does hamper, you know, you know, players who are trying to make that jump, you know, to professional game. Um, is the college soccer game set up to help kids be successful professionally? My answer right there is flat out no. All right. There needs to be changes. There's been changes that have been talked about that I, I think will, will help, you know, the players who are, are lucky and fortunate enough to go on to the professional game. Um, I mean, the bottom line is that, you know, there's so many good players out there. There really is. There's so many good players who don't play professionally, but probably could play professionally somewhere. Um, and, and it's sometimes about getting your opportunity, uh, you know, being seen at the right time and, and having a little bit of luck. And then, you know, just when you have that opportunity, taking it. So, 
So pretty definitive answer there from DJ, a flat out no that uh, American college soccer does not prepare kids for a professional career. Do you agree with that take, Matt? Yeah, I mean, I don't think that the priority of college soccer maybe is to create a system that best creates professional players. I, I think that if if that were there, there would be like those changes that he was talking about. And I know some of the guests uh, that we interviewed are going to detail those later on in the, in the podcast. But I mean, from my personal experience, I don't think that professionals are going to have to study for six different classes in a semester yeah. and wake up early mornings for a session and then rush back, take a shower and go to class at 8 a.m. And I don't think that they're going to have a life, uh, lifestyle or a schedule like that. And, and I don't think that that's going to be a system that best promotes the athletic success of a, of a player. But what about you? Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I think there's a lot of people that are coming into the college environment looking for different things from it. I mean, I know I came into the college environment and a professional career was never an option for me. I, I always knew college soccer was the highest level I wanted to achieve. I wanted to obviously succeed and continue to improve, but I wasn't looking at going beyond college. I always knew my goal is to get to college soccer. And then after that, my competitive career will be over at, at 21 years old as it, as it recently ended. So I really do. I agree with DJ. I don't think it's an environment where everyone there is trying to go play professional and they're pushing each other into that higher level. And the college coaches aren't as set up with those connections with the professional coaches and and stuff like that. So yeah, I don't think it's a great environment to develop professionals. I think guys are are swimming upstream when they're trying to use the college environment to go professional. Yeah. And, and a good, good example of that is that at Queens, we had to fill uh, two, two internships by the time we graduated. Yeah. Those are part-time or a full-time internship, either in the middle of your season. I know that you had experience doing that. Yeah, I did one in the spring during kind of our our spring season, which is a little bit lighter. But still, I mean, like that was time that I was going to work at the Charlotte Checkers and going into their office when it could be time that I could have been improving myself as a player if I was trying to go professional, right? I could have been taking better care of my body and all that sort of stuff, right? And those things started getting in the way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so... Obviously, the talk, though, is that people want college soccer to be a better part of the American soccer pyramid. I mean, they they want it to be a better part of the player development pathway. So reforms have been kicked around in so many different articles, so many different podcasts, so many different videos. Uh, We wanted to know what our guests thought of in in that sense. So um, I also followed up with DJ and I asked him, what do you think we can do? If you can change anything, you can have complete NCAA legislation control and you can change anything about college soccer to make it better, a better environment for people and a better environment for professional player development. What would you change? And this is what he said. I think uh, for me, first and foremost, I would push back the start of the season. Um, you know, we've got a whole, I mean, really a couple regions of the country that are playing in a hundred degree heat, you know, on a regular basis. So I uh, definitely push back the start date, you know, bring the guys back in when school starts beginning of September. And then at that point, you know, go ahead and start your month preseason, you know, where you're training every day. You don't need to do two a days. Um, you know, you're training every day. They're getting acclimated to being college students at the same time. And then I would kind of go to, you know, really like an eight month season at that point where you're not, you know, filling in, 
24, 25, 26 games in, in a three-month period, which you kind of experienced some of that. I mean, it, it, it is tough to do. I mean, the one thing that, like, a big component for me, if I for personally, so when we went to the NCAA tournament last year, we played a, a first-round NCAA game on a Thursday night, and then we played a second-round NCAA game on a Saturday night. It Kickoff was less than 48 hours. I mean, it was tough. And then on top of that, you're playing a team that didn't play, you know, that Thursday. So it's just there's a lot of things that, you know, kind of frustrate me about, you know, how the NCAA does things. But and I know I'm not alone on this. I think if they pushed it to basically, you know, you bring them in September, start games in October, play through maybe Christmas break, they go home for Christmas, then you have another acclimation period when they get back. You know, practicing all through January, then you go back at it again through February to maybe April, you know, late April, maybe early May. And then, you know, usually they're going to have about a month or a month, two months, month and a half at least, and then they can start playing PDL. So it's, it's it really is more like a professional kind of game, you know, where some, some time off is built in there, but you're not having, you know, a whole month off from you know doing anything um you know and and i know i think it's at the point now in the the collegiate game and i saw it you know personally with our guys at queens is that no one's really taking a month off um you know at least the guys who matter aren't taking a month off um but i just think making the season longer will will definitely it might be more cost you know for a school and for a program which i understand but I think you're going to have less, less injuries. It's more realistic. And then, you know, when these guys who are lucky enough and have the talent to go play at the next level, you know, it's not that big of a, a jump. You know, you know they played a nine-month season. You know, they're, it's more professional environment. And I think also when you're not rushing things from week to week, you know, we would play a game on a Wednesday, play a game on a Saturday. And then we had to take one day off in between, you know, a week. I mean, you're losing time to prepare for teams uh, and then, you know, have your body body recover. So um, I just feel like the setup that they have right now with college soccer is just kind of nomadic. It, it's it's very outdated. And, and this has been brought to their attention probably for about six or seven years. So it's, it's uh, my honest opinion, I think they're dragging their feet because I think it's a financial thing. I think they know it's probably the right thing to do, but, you know, money talks, so. Okay, so interesting perspective there from DJ. We also got to talk to uh, Clay Dimmick, who is a current professional player for the Charlotte Independence, which uh, plays in the USL Championship, which is the second division uh, in the U.S. soccer professional pyramid. Uh, Clay also played at Belmont Abbey. Uh, for four years. He's originally from Atlanta. He captained Belmont Abbey for two years. Upon graduating from Belmont Abbey, he did some trials in Australia before coming back uh, and trialing at several lower division teams in the U.S. before finally landing with the Charlotte Independence. He's also very familiar with the USL League Two pathway, uh, which used to be PDL. Um, So if you hear that throughout today, USL League Two and PDL are the same exact thing. USL League Two is just the rebrand, but you might hear Clay call it PDL or USL League Two interchangeably. So Clay has some really awesome perspective being a current professional player that came through the college environment and specifically the Division Two college environment. So 
I got the privilege of interviewing Clay and I asked him the same question I just asked DJ. How can we make the college environment a better environment for professional player development? Um, and he had some similar thoughts. If I could change one thing about it, probably be the season structure, um, especially for us being a fall sport. Like we would go not training with the guys we're going to play with and not everybody's playing PDL, as you know. So then you hop right back into season after like two weeks of preseason, a month at most. And then you play two games a week until uh, into October and then make the playoffs and then it's one one game. Two days later, it's the semifinal. Two days two days later, it's the final. So it's just like any athlete would tell you that's crazy. Like you can't last that long. I think you guys probably know. Like you, by the end of the season, nobody's one hundred percent. Like you're playing with a pulled groin or a pulled quad, whatever it is, hamstring, and you have to play like six more games in twelve days, whatever ridiculous it is. So I think for it to be a successful way to build players in a healthy environment and really reach their full growth, then it's got to be like eight months or whatever the like USL is maybe it's maybe it's August all the way to April. And then the, you have a winter break to go home and reset. And then you come back and you get another preseason and then you start again. And there's one game a week. But I think right now it's just ridiculous. Like the amount of games and your people are getting injured every game. So that would be my, my change for sure. Every year at Belmont Abbey, for some reason, we always scheduled the first week would be Thursday, Saturday, Tuesday. And so I'm going into this game Thursday, you play 90 minutes, okay, you wake up Friday, you can hardly walk because it's your first game in months. And then Saturday, you have to play another 90 minutes. Sun Saturday, you want to go hang out with friends. So who knows when you go to bed, Sunday, Monday come, Sunday's off, Monday, okay, you can't train, Tuesday, another game. And then you go into the fourth game of the season and two of your best players have like a pulled groin or hamstring. So it's just it's crazy. They really don't care about the NCAA really doesn't care much about like your health. They just want you to go through and spend the money. <laughs> okay. So similar thoughts there from DJ and Clay. Matt, what do we think about this potential solution? It, it seems good, right? Yeah. I mean, I think that it is great for the health and safety uh, of players. As, as you well know, I mean, I know in, in my experience, I was always going straight for the Norman tech before practice. I'd get there at least an hour early just to get extra warm up, extra stretching and recovery, staying an hour after practice. And, and we'd have nine, 9 PM practices. So I'd be staying there until 11 or even after that, like sometimes. So. Oh yeah. Practices sometimes were a, a f- even if the practice was an hour and a half, it was really like a five hour commitment between exactly the drive to the complex, the time spent in the training room, the warm up, the practice, the time spent in the training room after the drive back home. Um, it's a lot more than you think it is. And I know from my personal experience, um, my last two seasons, uh, my sophomore and junior season, I led or tied for the team lead in minutes. And I just was a constant battle in trying to keep my hamstrings in one piece. I mean, I remember just coming in, I would come straight into the training room. I would walk straight in. I would grab two heat pads. I would lay face down on the training table. I would heat my hamstrings for 10 minutes. Then I would go through a 15, 20 minute hamstring stretching regimen. And then I would do some sort of treatment on my hamstrings, whether it was scraping or cupping, which Michael Phelps made really famous. So I always had like bruises on my hamstrings and stuff. And then it was ankle rehab. So I wouldn't twist my ankle and it was just this whole thing. And then I could start practice. I would scrape my hamstrings before every single game, uh, every time, which basically just like breaks down the adhesions and scar tissue on your hamstrings. So you can only do it every once in a while. So I did it always before games. So I know like from both of our personal experiences, it's a battle to just stay healthy. And then 
beyond your physical health, just your mental health too. When you're playing two games a week, you're trying to keep up with schoolwork, you're maybe working a job or doing an internship if you even have time for that. That three months is a really difficult time just from kind of a mental health standpoint because it's such a grind. Yeah, there, there are no breaks. Even when we get fall break, we, we have practice. Even yeah. if it's Thanksgiving break, uh, I mean, I guess that would be a little bit later later on into the season. But yeah. depending on if we were in NCAA, Yeah, that would always fall kind of near the conference tournament kind of time, uh, NCAA tournament Which kind is of time, the peak. So. You can't be having breaks yeah. at like the pinnacle of yeah. your season. And I, I definitely agree in a sense of elongating the or prolonging the season would be the best way of doing it in order to guarantee the safety of the athletes because you have these people that are going to be high risk already because they're pushing their bodies I remember preseason practice we're on a turf field I had I think navy or black cleats on oh yeah my feet were boiling (laughs) yeah I, I I got blisters not not even from running but just because the astroturf was so hot in 100 plus degree heat in North Carolina in the in July and it was miserable it, it was extremely painful and so I think that having it a little bit more back into the fall yeah take off for the harsh winter have that winter have that winter break as well so yeah, especially for your northern teams exactly. you want to play you can't play during that time it's just not realistic yeah um, if someone gets injured like for us like if we pull our hamstring like you're done yeah like do you, do you remember it. like our, our my freshman year your sophomore year we yeah. had like probably eight people out at one time yeah it was ridiculous like Liam Keegan and everyone was just where coach was constantly having to fight yeah in terms of that yeah so if if you split it between the between fall and spring if you lose someone to a longer term injury you're still probably going to get them back for the spring and it allows people to play more full strength and all that kind of stuff right but I mean there's obviously like they they talk about uh, both Clay and um, DJ mentioned money in different ways there and that's ultimately, I think, what the com- a lot of conversations come back to, not just conversations yeah. around soccer, but yeah, definitely, and and I think that that's a good point. And so, for hosting games throughout the entire season, it, it's hard when we're having to share a single field. We only have a single full size field at Queens, and so you're sharing that between men and women's rugby, men and women's lacrosse, yep. men and women's soccer, and yep. those are all overlapping seasons. And so you're having to fight for field time and no one's wanting to go play on like the nasty grass field by Myers yeah. Park traditional behind yeah. the, behind the parking deck. And so we're, we're having to fight. So you got, you got logistical problems. And yeah. so you'd either have to spend money on creating another field. And yeah. I mean, and I think people don't think about that sometimes because they think about just the D1 programs, right? Like if you go um, in our region of the country, if you go over to Clemson, right, they've got a dedicated soccer stadium like it's just for soccer they have dedicated soccer training fields they have dedicated soccer locker rooms like all that sort of stuff but as you start to come down the NCAA pyramid into smaller D1s maybe uh, like I know Winthrop shares their soccer field with lacrosse yeah so like different parts of the field get torn up and that makes maintenance of a grass field very hard even Um, even turf like uh, I remember that that area by the goalkeeper net and lacrosse was always matted down and if you're you're playing yeah and if you're playing a ball through like you're fizzing it over that it's yeah. going to bobble yeah. and, and it's just super frustrating but even for a division two program with one of the highest endowments and it's the highest endowment in our conference by yeah. double yeah. The ne- by the second place and we can only afford to have one field yeah. it's not a realistic option to have multiple fields yeah. it's I, just, and i guess it's, on the flip side though of that too is you are proposing okay but at that point uh, if you were playing in the spring and you were overlapping with say lacrosse or whatever, you'd only be playing one game 
a week. Yeah. So there aren't as many scheduling like conflicts and stuff. So you could argue that it balances out. um, But you also kind of have to talk about the staffing. Yeah. Right. Like, I I mean, I know for us, we've only got one sports broadcaster, Phil Constantino, the man, Mm -hmm. the myth, the legend. Um, But, you know, how is he going to is his hours going to be increased in the spring and less in the fall now? Like, there's a lot of headaches. To, it's not as simple as we would like to make it seem. I think it could still happen. Like yeah. we're, we're, we're having a complex conversation. I think they're really trying to push this through. Um, there's there's whole committees on this. They keep proposing it at the NCAA. I think eventually it's going to get done. The NCAA are definitely dragging their feet, though, as as DJ mentioned. So we'll see. We'll see what ends up happening there. I think overall, though, when you make the argument to the NCAA that this is going to be better for the health and safety of student athletes, yeah. it's hard for them to argue against that, especially if you prevent if you provide convincing data. Uh, exactly. About that. Um, and it's going to have the knock on effect of creating a better professional environment. Right. But you have to sell it to the NCAA as the health and safety thing. So um, that's, I think, where that is going to go. So we were able to also talk uh, to one other guest, uh, Keegan Burton. So Keegan is a longtime teammate and friend of both me and Matt. And he came from England. He grew up playing in the Sheffield United Academy, um, played there until he was 18 when he was released and made his way over to the United States to play at Queens. He's now a senior. Um, He's a starter. He's a captain, just all around really, really great guy. And he's got a really fascinating background story about how he ended up in the United Academy and then ultimately how he ended up here playing college soccer. And he can tell that way better than either me or Matt can tell it. So we'll let him tell you that story. But yeah, in terms of my first actual experience playing, Mm -hmm. I was about six years old. And I wanted to be like play what we call Sunday League. Mm-hmm. So, but at that time I was a year young, so a lot of teams didn't really like take. I want to say take a chance because I'm six years old. It's not like I'm going to get a five year deal on fifty grand a week. But like, that'd be nice. Do you know what I mean just like yeah. being in that environment and playing with a team? And luckily for me, um, a team called Brampton Rovers took a chance on me a year younger. Uh, they must have like just said, "Yeah, you can come play." They needed a player. And the first ever game we played, um, from the halfway line, I got the ball, ran the full length of the field and scored. So wow. five games into the season, I come off the field one day and there's this scary looking man looking at me and he's like, where are your parents? And I'm like, oh God, oh, like, what's happening here? And the guy went over and spoke to my dad and he was like, got in the car. And my dad, I could see my dad wasn't like, was like happy, but like, wow, this, what's happening here? And he just explained to me that that was a Sheffield United scout and he wants you to come to this on a Saturday morning. So I used to go Saturday mornings to Sheffield United as a six, seven-year-old. And it was like, because I think their age don't start till under eight. So I was like seven years old, six, seven years old, going there once a week just to like be in that environment. I used to go like two two times a week, I think, when I signed. And we used to play every team in the country, like under nines, under tens, under elevens, then the transition to 11 aside. And then... At 14, it start, It changes a little bit. You start thinking like... Because we leave school like 16, 17, high mm-hmm. school. So you got to think about... And then there's a thing called a scholarship. Like, I don't know how to explain. Like an apprentice. Mm. So you've got to... At 14, you're like, mm, is this guy going to be good enough to get an apprentice? And actually at 14, it's a funny story. I got told um, one training session, I made a bad pass. Like a really bad pass. And my coach went to me. He lost his head at me a bit like... We're growing up a bit, like he's, he's allowed to. And he was like, I stuck my neck out for a contract for you this year. So I looked at him and I was like, mm, right. 
I'm I'm like on the line here, like wow. this, this is like this is the first time it's hit home. Like you've got to book your ideas up, or else this could be the last year. Like you're in this program. So I want to say the big the big thing was like obviously they saw that I had a technical talent, if you know what I mean. Like I was good on the ball. Like I I can look after. I can play with it. Like it's like a simple talent like that. But my, mine was more where do you play? Like, do we, Do you want to be versatile or do you want to master one position? And this was a big conversation I had with myself because I was a right back at the time. Oh, like, wow. Yeah, so I used to play right back. So there was like, and sometimes my 1v1 defending ain't ain't the best. Mm. But, um, so they decided, it was like, I can remember it like it was yesterday. They decided that um, we were playing Notts Forest away, Nottingham Forest. Mm. And they said, Keegan, read the team out, I went at right back. So I'm like, oh, I've been dropped. And it like moved moved on and it was like starting up front is gonna be Keegan and I was like So I'm starting up front against Forrest away. Number nine? Yeah, number nine. So I've never played this position in my life. So obviously going forward I was good as a fullback, but yeah. defending one V one situations maybe not my strong suit. So I remember playing Forrest away, we won two one and I actually scored both goals. So from then on I kinda kicked on a little bit under fifteens, under sixteens, and then at sixteens is when you get that you get your suit on and you look go to the go to Bramall Lane and you go to the box and you sit down there with like the head of the academy like and all that stuff and you get decide whether you're going to have that two-year contract where you go full-time and like after school and you're in every day like moving forward for two years okay so 416 mm-hmm. you have your apprenticeship yep and so now now you're a professional you're getting paid to well, play semi-professional yeah, like, semi, like, semi. I don't you call it like they call him an apprentice or a YT Okay. So it's like you get you get your your money and yeah, you, you do your you go in every day. But it's like you the shadow squad say basically to the first team. We have, you have a squad of about eighteen, nineteen, maybe even twenty, and um, you've got probably like two or three that make it. Like if we're in all honesty, like you've got probably two or three that make it. And then even when they make it, it's not really you're getting a pro contract and you're in the twenty threes. Mm-hmm. Like it's not. It's like fine, fine lines. Like I moved out at 16 to go to live in Sheffield and my roommate was actually Aaron Ramsdale, the Bournemouth oh, keeper. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so cool. he, was, he was my roommate and um, yeah, so... He, He's he, back at Sheffield. No, he's uh, back, now, oh, yeah. yeah, back at Sheffield United, yeah, yeah my bad. Um, and then obviously it was him and David Brooks, do you know the winger at Bournemouth? Yeah. Yeah, so them two both was like in my area. One lived down the road, one lived in my area, but... Them, them two made it, obviously. And if you look at the rest of the squad, you're looking at like five or six players who have made it. And then out of them five or six players, two of them made it at Sheffield United. Four of them made it probably elsewhere, like a League One, League Two clubs. So you've got, the way I look at it is you've got two two or three different options you can do as soon as you get that bad news. Mm-hmm. Like So obviously, we was there was six months before like your contract ends, you kind of have an idea if you're going to be a pro or not. So um, actually, Pass for Soccer came in. Uh, they're like a company who work on transitioning athletes over to America, and they put on a whole presentation, showed us the Clemson recruitment video, and like this is what you can do, did da, 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 all that stuff. Um, yeah, so that's my first taste of like college soccer, and I was like, hmm, seems like a bit of me that like if it don't work out, I'm gonna definitely exploit this road if it's possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you've got the option where you can drop into non-league. And do the old school Jamie Vardy story. Yeah. Like work your way back up. I know of a guy back home right now who's worked his way back up and he's playing in the conference. So he's done really well for himself. And then you've got the other ones who just like fall off the face of the earth. Mm-hmm. Like take it really, really bad. And 
if you're not mentally strong, it can it can definitely um, definitely affect you negatively. But I felt for me in my situation, I de- I want I was always quite like switched on at school, like I wanted to do well. I didn't really like fail any classes or like care about getting going out. I made a lot of sac- sacrifices, so I wanted to come over, carry on playing football, soccer, <laughs> yeah, and then but get that degree to like back up myself instead because I'd already had that plan A fail. Mm-hmm. It was like a plan B in terms of my attitude towards coming over here. I, I really enjoyed getting to talk with Keegan and hearing more about his story. I, I think that the thing that stood out most to me was one, the, the pressure associated with being in, in a club your whole life and having a scout, a, a designated scout from Sheffield United who are in the Premier League now and yeah. were in the Premier League at the time that he was scouted come and watch my games as a six-year-old playing in an under-sevens game or an under-eights game. I can't imagine yeah. just having some, like you said, it, it cracked me up, some scary man just like walking <laughs> up to you asking where your parents are. It's like, oh my gosh, is this the undertaker or something? But <laughs> I, I just can't imagine being scouted. And I mean, I guess that's what it, the transition in the U.S. is, is yeah. going more more it's towards. Crazy. Like think about like a Carolina Panthers scout walking up to a six-year-old and being like, right, we want you like in our academy, like really think you could be like our next wide receiver. Like what? Like yeah. it's just like, it's like a totally like, it's a totally different culture from uh, I think what takes place here. Uh, you're probably starting to see a little bit more as the MLS academies start to to grow up. I mean, I loved the part where he's like, uh, where his coach is like, I stuck my neck out for you. Like yeah. it needs to be better than that. Like that's like a, at 13, 14 years old, like that was when it got real for him. Uh, and that's yeah. pretty crazy. Right. And, and I think we spoke to Keegan about this. You're not going to hear it on the interview, but um, he spoke to it about like, he had no idea when he just started playing at Shelford United at seven, eight, like what it meant at that point. Right. And so then I think these kids kind of get into it and then it gets real and then it like becomes something a little bit different and you kind of have to evolve as you go through it. So I think that's pretty cool. And we played you Keegan's whole story because one, it's pretty cool. Like it's just cool to hear a different perspective, how soccer um, works in different countries, how the developmental period works in different countries, but also it really informs his perspective on um, what he thinks should be reformed about the college environment. So um, Matt asked him the same question that I asked Clay and DJ. We wanted to know what would you change about college soccer to make it better? And I don't know about you, but I mean, I figured he was just going to talk about like extending the college soccer season. That's what I figured. Exactly. That's say. the most debated thing about MLS and yeah. is it's schedule, it's season schedule to line up more with, with the European schedule. So obviously that's just a very easy, um, you know, topic to to start discussing you know right because we all talk about it too all the time like oh our bodies are dead i wish this yeah. season was longer Especially why are we keegan, playing two games a keegan week? of yeah. all people he was <laughs> always fighting an injury his ankles yeah. were always getting destroyed yeah 100 so we expected him to say that and i'm sure he probably has some thoughts on that and we just didn't touch on that in the interview but he came in with a completely different solution that we personally hadn't really heard before and like I said I think it's a lot to do with the fact that we came up in a different soccer footballing environment Um, so Keegan and Matt had a really good back and forth about his potential solution for how to reform college soccer I feel like so I'm going to touch base quickly back home like you've got what the 92 professional clubs 91 whatever it is like um, and each one of them have got an academy give or take a couple that start from the first team and go all the way down to under sevens. Mm -hmm. So you know you've got that pathway no matter what. I would say 
in terms of college soccer, in terms of D1, D2, D3, maybe having some sort of clarity and pathway regarding not necessarily just the draft, but saying like, oh, I actually thought about this the other day with Kieran, like what's stopping like Clemson being a feeder club to, I don't know, name a team around here. Like what's what's wrong with them like being associated like publicly, if you know what I mean? Like, so, or like, or like say for instance, Queens being associated with UNCC. And if you've got the good players at Queens, why can't you go play a D1 and just transfer across as simple as that I think the fluidity and movement of players is tough in America yeah I mean I I I think that's a really good point I I I definitely agree in a sense I think that that comes to the NCAA and in terms of what defining a student athlete is and, and saying that it's not professional they shouldn't be paid and there shouldn't be connections with professional institutions Mm -hmm. these are academic institutions that offer you know athletics and stuff not a athletic driven um partnership with Mm -hmm. with like a we're not a feeder Mm -hmm. we we want to try and get everyone else who goes to the school and i mean i i I think i would agree with you in a sense of there there are so many different levels and so many stoppages and so kind of with like the mls their structure of single entity is like they have a lot of things that mm. are in place to where it's not like a whole free market of of transitioning players between clubs and stuff mm. and in terms of how you can spend your money or whatever i think maybe the counter argument to to your um proposition of you know becoming feeders is i, I was able to go to queens and mm. and see if i wanted to explore the avenue of playing athletics but I'm going to graduate with a degree mm-hmm. and still have that experience of being like, Oh yeah, I played with people that played at Sheffield United yeah, yeah. or whatever and, and oh, yeah. stuff. And so I think it, it, it all comes down to what the role of college soccer is. If it is a stepping stone for professionals, yes, there should be open gateways mm-hmm. in terms of yeah. D2. Yeah. You can go to your D1 program and a D1 program. You'll probably have a, academy players from Charlotte FC if you're yeah. at UNCC and then the occasional person that like slipped through and stuff. But given the fact that I, I personally don't find college soccer to be an avenue for making professionals first, mm-hmm. I don't quite agree that that that's probably a, a good option. But what what would your counter argument to that be? So you you look at you look at college soccer now, um, especially with some of the some of the friends I have at the big the big programs. They're they're really kicking on. Like I've got a guy who plays at Virginia. I've got a, I will say I've got a guy like I'm a, like I own him. But no, I've got like friends who play at Virginia, Clemson, mm-hmm. and like some of the big D one programs. And some of their I would say I don't know how to explain it. Like um, they're what's the word for like when you're in the limelight or get that the exposure the exposure yeah. they get at d1 mm-hmm. d1 level is is ridiculous compared to any other like d2 d3 so i feel like yeah for like for me as well i'm i'm obviously soccer oriented mm-hmm. but the reason i did come here in like parallel with playing soccer was because I knew no matter what, if I get that bad news again, mm. I've got something to fall back on this time. I'm not going to leave myself with no trampoline to bounce back up on if I do get like that bad news again. Yeah. So maybe, maybe for the MLS moving forward, that would look like 
starting to partner more mm. with the college soccer divisions yeah. and trying to establish roots for players like they have the MLS draft maybe that's something that has to go away in terms of being like um you know you could be Daryl DK mm-hmm. and uh be like the best striker in the nation and at UVA tearing yeah. it up and if you know maybe there's a lack of motivation of like okay well I worked my butt off mm-hmm. I, like my whole life committed to this and I'm going to get drafted by Orlando City obviously that's worked out for him this year but in terms of that avenue of like there there's not that motivation here to be like I'm going to subjugate myself to getting drafted by like a terrible team in MLS and have like a tough start to my career maybe that would look like you know having you know the zoning with the recruitment mm-hmm. and stuff for academies in terms of homegrown player rights and so maybe opening up and and reforming mm-hmm. the draft system maybe just getting rid of yeah. it and, and having more of a you you go to UVA mm-hmm. and then you go play for DC United or whoever has those territory rights or, or like you say for though the draft is good because you get to the pick of the best players in the country yes so even maybe having the MLS have a, a fully fledged partnership with the NCAA in terms of where you have the draft and you have that option of picking a player if you're a West Coast team on the East Coast like one round mm-hmm. and then from there because then you have the limelight of like these are the best players in the country look out for these they're going all around the world and then for the players who don't quite like make it or were on the radars but don't or slip through you have the opportunity if you're good enough to be invited or if you're good enough to be suggested by someone where you can go and have a little trial period or see if you can make the cut there when you get that opportunity yeah exactly i think that's a really good point and and something that we can you know start looking at talking about in the future obviously a really interesting conversation and yeah. uh one i don't think uh neither you nor me were prepared for <laughs> uh so i well done going off the cuff there in that conversation with with Keegan, but I, give me your takeaways. Like, is is what he proposes realistic? Well, I think that just an idea that I had. We, we talk about having multiple divisions of professional soccer in the U.S., similar to what they have all across the world in terms of you have the Premier League, the Championship, League right. One, League Two, whatever, and, and that pyramid. Yeah. Maybe using college soccer is how we have a viable and financially stable way of creating that pyramid. Yeah. of that that level and that feeding of of talent and so you have your academies in terms of player development that's the pinnacle of player development because you have these kids that are getting you know their their education but that's not the primary focus they're right. getting the top facilities at a young age getting the top coaching and playing constantly maybe for those two or three players they move on to the first team sign their under 23s keep playing get a pro contract move up but for those other 18 players, those other players that didn't get that final contract, they go to Division One of soccer. That's where they 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 fall down. They go into Division One of soccer, and they have that guaranteed safety net like Keegan now has because he wasn't part of that pinnacle, right? And so he fell on it um, just like these players would theoretically, and then maybe if they want to make those adequate sacrifices they can get highlighted and be the best players that aren't in the academy systems within the U.S. Mm-hmm. And then you have, you know, other players that maybe didn't make it into academies. They can fill in the rest of those rosters 
and the other foreign international people that didn't make those like those final academy rosters and and they fill in d1 and then the people who fall through those cracks go to d2 yeah and obviously sports in ncaa it's up in the air in terms of whether it's financially viable for for a lot of these programs a lot of them don't yeah. make a profit off of it, but yeah. I don't. I mean, just recently, even in this area, you saw App State recently cut their men's soccer program. Exactly, kind of seemingly out of nowhere. Um, Clemson University just the other day cut their track and field program, and it was one of the most successful track and yeah, field. Yeah, they had programs. an Olympian. Uh, yeah, they had from like 2016. Yeah, or something. like one of the most successful sprint programs in the country. Obviously, a different sport, but shows you uh, kind of colleges starting to. Um, bring the reins back in a little bit on some of the financial outlay on their sports. Um, I think also part of the problem when you're talking about a full-fledged official partnership, I just don't think the NCAA is ever going to go for that. I don't either. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, I don't think you're proposing that either, but I think it's good to get out there that you can see in the recent drawn out battle over whether players can profit off their name and likeness um, or NCAA student athletes can profit off their name and likeness. And that was a whole thing that the NCAA finally gave in on. And if they're going to dig their heels in on that, they're definitely not going to form like an official partnership for professional development because their whole model is predicated off the fact that you are a student athlete and you are amateur and it is not a like professional development thing. Uh, and that's kind of like how their whole business model works. So I don't think they're ever going to go for that, but I think, uh, to be fair, MLS academies and clubs are already doing what you propose. Um, I think you see plenty of examples of it. Um, for example, Jordan Morris, right. Um, came up to the Sounders Academy, um, went to Stanford, absolutely popped off at Stanford was incredible there and then came back and there was big debate about whether he was going to sign for the Sounders or go over to Germany and sign a contract with the Bundesliga club and he's up signing with the Sounders and he's doing amazing now uh, Corey Baird for Real Salt Lake he came up through the Real Salt Lake Academy did not get a homegrown deal he was not one of those two to four players that made it straight out went to Stanford did a similar Jordan Morris type of career came back, signed a homegrown deal with Real Salt Lake after he developed a little bit more, and now he starts game in, game out for Real Salt Lake. So you are seeing some academies already use it like that. Um, and I think you're obviously proposing do it more. Yeah, like, exactly. You know, like really, really push push those players that don't sign those two year the, those deals after um, they graduate from the academy to go to college programs. And maybe it's form better partnerships with those college coaches. Like what's one of the things that Keegan said was like, what's stopping Atlanta United or Charlotte FC, like announcing kind of a partnership with Clemson or even under the table with Clemson being like, Hey, like uh, as long as like we cross develop in some of our coaching techniques and stuff like that, we'll send you Academy players pretty consistently. um, And we expect you to develop them and hopefully we kind of get them back. And if not, they have their degrees. I think what Keegan's proposing and I think people should be looking at uh, managers should be looking at front officers should be looking at major league soccer. And I definitely agree. I think that that's a very easy way. I quite frankly, I think it's quite easy. It's not too financially, uh, stringent or yeah. tight on, on, on either program. 
Um, but Obviously also going to be way, way better if they are able to get this legislation through and extend the season so yeah. it mirrors more of a pro season because one of the biggest things with college players coming out is they are only used to playing two or three-month seasons, and so you pop them into a grinding eight-month yeah. season. They just, one, haven't had enough development, and two, aren't used to like taking care of their bodies for that long of a period of time. Um, so if they can get that legislation through, this philosophy will work yeah, even better. Yeah, and, and it's even better for scouting on these players because yeah. you have a lot more game time. You have a lot more, hopefully you're going to be healthier. Right. And hopefully if you are injured, you're going to have a lot more time to get back and running and playing games in the spring or something. If that, if that happened, but I want to know what your thoughts are on the, on the draft on the MLS, on MLS draft, because there's been a a highly, like that's a highly debated thing. Take for example, Jack Harrison, like wildly successful, went on to play for New York city FC, got bought by Manchester city and now plays for Leeds United on loan. Right. So he's a great example like of domestic success and abroad. But then you got Daryl DK of last year who was fantastic. You saw him play in person. I think we've mentioned on an episode and in in the podcast. And so do you think that MLS draft is wanting to, you know, focus on on those players anymore? Because I I don't feel like the college system really is wanting to promote professional players first. And I think MLS is kind of, doing that themselves now and so is mls draft even like necessary for four teams it's just prohibiting teams from signing players and it's prohibiting you know players to develop at at their academies or whatever despite having a homegrown deal or or lack thereof to to get a contract with their team that they've been playing for since they might have been eight right right um yeah i mean uh first uh a little bit on the ncaa um I don't think they particularly are going to have too much of a problem with it. Um, you see the NFL draft being huge, uh, and it's predicated exclusively on NCAA uh, college players. So I don't think the NCAA is necessarily going to get in the way uh, of any sort of MLS draft. I don't think they're too much of a concern. Um, obviously, the draft has evolved over the last decade to decade and a half. Um, you saw the great sporting Kansas City teams uh, of pretty, of Peter Vermees's early tenure um, after uh, they rebranded and stuff built off of the draft. Seth Sinovic, Matt Beasler, uh, just like four or five of their guys that were the core part of their team for seven, eight years were came to the draft and they drafted incredibly, but that was a different era. And now you don't see that anymore. Now, Daryl DK is the exception, not the rule. Jack Harrison is the exception not the rule. Yeah, look at the U.S. men's national team, the pool of players that we have for our current um, camp that, that's going on. It's November, I guess, November 12th when we're recording yeah. this. They're playing their first game. Maybe one of those players played in college. Yeah, it's, it's, th- yeah. it's all abroad. They all played in academies their entire life. They either within the mm-hmm. U.S. system and then shipped out abroad. That's something DJ mentioned when I interviewed him. Exactly. Was, uh, look at the U.S. national team roster 10, 15 years ago. It was guys that almost all had college soccer experience. Like, look at Clint Dempsey, one of the greatest American soccer players of all time, came out of Furman, a small school in South Carolina, right? And now, like you said, and like DJ said, it's almost exclusively academy kids, kids that have been to Europe or kids that have come through MLS academies or, or a little bit of both. So, yeah, I think that's um, really, really interesting. And the draft is definitely losing relevance i you see it now like there there's uh, quite a few rounds and it's basically like beyond the top 10 picks everyone else is being picked as trial players 
Like it's just a draft. It's just a snake draft. And uh, you're just picking up players that will fill your preseason roster. And you're hoping like one or two players there will make it. And they're all basically trial players. You see a high percentage of guys that get drafted, not make the roster. Right. And then just go on to like a USL championship team or whatever it is. Right. And then if you are not a guy that's getting drafted, the, those guys are getting signed in basically a free market by USL championship teams, USL league one teams, US, like those kinds of places or going outside of the country. So you see, do, do see that free market there. And so I think Keegan's argument to shrink the draft almost and just make it like one round just for that publicity. Because again, like if it's like, you know, the first 15, 20 picks, like those are guys that you think are going to make your roster, right? Like, and beyond that, not really anymore. So maybe just, just shrink it to that, like just shrink it to 20 selections and then let the rest be free market so that guys that are going to trial can find the best place to go to trial on rather than having a tough start to to their career. But I mean, I think Keegan's argument that the publicity and the hype around these bigger players like Daryl DK and that kind of stuff and Jack Harrison is warranted. Um, but I do think eventually the draft is probably going to go and you, you might just see a, a free market, a free player market coming out of college just because it's mostly going to end up being college players and, and stuff like that. Or you are seeing a ton of great college players come out of the ranks but the super draft is only guys that teams don't have homegrown rights to. Mm-hmm. The guys I mentioned before, Corey Baird, Jordan Morris, did not come through the super draft. It's important to note that. They, their team still held the homegrown rights for them. So if you're an academy player that gets released, you go to college, and then you come back in, your team from your academy has the first right to sign you. So the kids coming to the super draft are only guys that were unaffiliated with MLS academies, which, so obviously like you, you see, like the draft is probably going to go away here in the next decade yeah, or two. It's too complicated. There's too many ties and, and you don't have a legitimate draft. It's not mm-hmm. the best players within college soccer being drafted by whatever team is selected that, that is deemed first in the pick or, or whatever yeah. necessarily. You know, there, there's a lot of caveats to it. You Like you just said, you can't yeah. have homegrown. You can't be within, affiliated with academies. But yeah. I mean, just let just let MLS teams, um, just let them do the same thing that they do for other players. Like we discussed in episode four, let them file a discovery claim on a college player that they're interested in, and then they can make that kid an offer. And if someone else is interested in them, they can, if they really want them, they can pay 50,000 and make a better offer, right? Like, mm-hmm. and, it gives, and it gives those kids the opportunity so the guy the people that really want them get them not the people that happen to be in the order of the draft they are yeah when they i come wouldn't around. want to get drafted by houston who have no incentive of developing yeah. players and stuff i want a right. team that's going to really want me so and maybe has a path to the first team for me and um maybe a, a smaller back into the roster yeah. better chance to make it as a trial player there's a lot of factors that go into it there um so yeah yeah and and well, wrapping this up and moving on to our to our next conversation, I think it's important to note just ultimately in summary with with the the draft in MLS, you have the best players are going to academies, and you have a lot better players coming up through the system that that might have not made these academies and and everything. Right. But I think that's an important way to distinguish what is the purpose of college soccer. Is it in order to get the best players? from either academies or just the U.S. market as a whole yeah. to become professional? Or is it that safety net that, that Keegan really got to to flourish and enjoy? Yeah. Or is it a safety net for the academy players that might not have made those homegrown deals? So 
we talked with with Clay and DJ, uh, as you heard earlier, yeah. and, and this is kind of what they had to say regarding what the role of college soccer is and, and moving forward. Right. I think now, like you said, we're starting to see a shift into the kids that are 18 just going straight pro and skipping the whole college landscape. Um, but I do think it, it can be important. Like you get a degree out of it. And that's like when you're done playing, you always hear about athletes that don't have anything to fall back on. Um, so I think there is a role for it. Um, but it's just tough because you're getting like the top players now when they turn 18, they're not going to college. So the level is going to keep dropping because all these guys are getting homegrown deals or they're going overseas, whatever it may be. So I don't know, maybe it's used as like a, as like a second option for the people who aren't going to sign those homegrown deals. They do want to play professionally, but they, so they go to college and they develop further as a player at a pretty high level and they get a degree along the way and then they go professional. But I do think there's starting to be like a big shift, like Europe. Um, the people are just turning 18, they're going pro 17, whatever it may be. I'll start with this. So if I look back when I first started coaching in 2010 to basically what it was like this last year coaching, I will say this, the level of college soccer, at least at the, maybe not the top, top division one, but the level of division three, division two, and even maybe the lower level division ones, just the overall level of play has gotten, you know, miles and miles better. I mean, it it has, I mean, it's, it's just a, a much more popular route for guys to play, you know, continue their soccer careers. I mean, you, you've got guys from all over the world. It's not just, you know, U.S. kids, which, you know, when I when I played collegially, there were some internationals playing, but it wasn't it wasn't anything like it is now, you know. And, and you know, I think that's good for the game. So and I also think that if. You know, I touched base about the, the, the major academies and, and, you know, we have a, a lot. Look at our national team. We have a lot of young kids who are not even playing collegiately. So it's getting, you know, when those guys go on to sign these professional contracts, it just kind of trickles down where, you know, maybe the top, top college programs, they're not getting those, those pro kids anymore. They're going straight pros and they're getting the next guys up and it's just raising the level. You know, I mean, if you bring a maybe a, a kid who – should be at a, a major division two, but gets an opportunity to play at a really high level division one, they're probably going to, you know, it's either sink or swim, but they're going to be playing with better players on, on a daily basis. So they're going to get better. I mean, that's just kind of how it works. Now the role of college soccer in the future, that's a question I cannot answer. Now, if, I, if I'm completely honest, I think, you know, I think it still has a major role in soccer in the U.S. Now, does it have a major role in the professional game? I don't know. I think that's hard to tell. I mean, I, I think, you know, the academy system's gotten much better. Coaching in the U.S. has gotten much better. Um, these guys are just getting opportunities that weren't there, you know, 10 years ago to, to make the jump and play professionally. Um, you know, whether that's in the U.S. or abroad. I mean, it, it's just – it's just hard to say, but I, I will say this. I think that soccer has gotten to such a high level across the board collegially. Um, and I think it's going to continue to get better that it definitely, you know, should stick around because, um, you know, first and foremost, it gives these kids an opportunity to continue their soccer careers, but also get an education, um, continue to play. And, you know, it's a good game. It's a good game. It, it really is. It's, it's, it's fun to watch college soccer. 
It really is. I mean, I, I watch ACC games and, you know, I watch Division Two, Division Three. It, it doesn't matter to me. It's a good level and I enjoy watching it. So I just think that now is college soccer's role again to develop professionals? I don't know. I think it's going to do that, you know, some, you know, situations. But, I mean, I think ultimately it's just going to continue to grow the game in the U.S. because more kids are playing, more exposure. Um, you know, it's it, if if I take my personal experience, our good years at Queens, I mean, we had the community coming out and watch where, you know, that wasn't always the case. So I just think the game's going to continue to grow. Um, I, I think it'll go to the next level if they do make those changes that we talked about earlier. All right. So interesting perspectives from both Clay and DJ there. Uh, we really appreciate them coming on and, and giving us their time and talking to us and taking time out of their day. So, Matt, I think you're starting to hear from both of them that they both mentioned there. They keep going back to, oh, yeah, well, um, I'm not really sure what it's going to be going forward, but at least people can get degrees. So I think it still has a place in that way. And I think that's ultimately my takeaway and our takeaway from yeah. all this research and all this interviewing and and just our experience personally with college soccer is that maybe American soccer media is talking about college soccer in the wrong way and yeah. looking at it in the wrong way. We keep talking about how can we develop players professionally? How can we do better? How can the college game be better to do that and be a better part of the pathway? But should that be its primary purpose? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think so. I think that ultimately college soccer is, is for those people who don't make those homegrown academy deals. Yep. You know, that that's the best case scenario. Right. It's for the people that don't make those under 23 or first team contracts, whether it be, you know, domestically or abroad. Mm-hmm. But I guess within this conversation, we're going to be talking about domestically. What is what is college soccer for for the American player? Yeah. For for us too. Yeah, it's it's for people like me and me that yeah. never really thought about playing professionally. That was never part of our goals and college soccer is still feasible for us. Exactly. And so you have the best case scenario, or they like the top level player in the college system, it's probably going to be those people that were in the academies just right. didn't didn't make it, and so that they have a safety net for them to fall back on, just like Keegan, and and play at a high level and make of it what they want. You know, Clay was at a D two school, and he had to work his butt off. He, he in his interview that uh, y'all y'all didn't hear, he said he had to make some sacrifices. So yeah. he was, you know, not going out, not drinking alcohol as much. He was making sure that he was doing better recovery and fitness and all these things. And yeah. ultimately it's what these players want to make of it. Like if, if we wanted, we could be like clay. If we wanted, if our priority was to go professional and we, and we weren't affiliated with an Academy, yeah. we could still make it professionally and have a, have a good career. Yeah. Ultimately. And then you have your middle tier player, you know, just like us where right. we know it, it's something that we want to take seriously yeah and invest a lot of time into but that's ultimately all that we want it to be and and we go and move forward and have a college degree and get a job and then lastly it's maybe it's just for the people that are there you know just to like you know do it for 
whatever reason, maybe, maybe playing isn't their dream or whatever. It's just like yeah. an opportunity for them yeah. to, to go and maybe opportunity have that to get a degree. Yeah. Opportunity to fund their way through a degree, right? Like exactly. that is very much a, a good thing. It's, it's a way for people to get into college and afford college. That's a very, uh, important part of of the whole environment as well um and so i I think clay and dj's points we agree there i think we all kind of agree there and um, i agree with your point that it is what you make it and i don't think importantly i don't think sometimes we acknowledge the positive aspects of what college soccer is in the u.s Uh, i think we've talked about this before on the podcast is the American soccer inferior inferiority complex. Yeah. Like we, we always feel like all oh, like the golden standard is what's being done in Europe. And we have to emulate that and get to that and be doing the exact same things as them and then try to start doing it better than them. But like are the, are some of the ways that they do it in Europe the right way? Um, and, and should we be just, producing elite professional players at all costs i don't i don't think so i mean like we have to like look at this as humans as Mm -hmm. well like how are we treating people how are we giving them paths to lives after the game and all that kind of stuff um so before we talk more about that keegan obviously has firsthand perspective being in a european country in england with a system that maybe doesn't have that safety net built in that is college soccer in the U.S. And so he had to take a little bit more initiative to find his next stuff after being released. So we'll let you, we'll let him tell you guys about that. So there's actually like, I want to say there, there is the, there's the league football education. It's called the LFE in, in which like you look after your, um, uh, you sign up when you first start signing contracts and you're there and you remember for life. Like they helped me funding wise coming out here some like through the years, they, they definitely helped them and the PFA professional football association both helped me both out when I'm here. But I think sometimes people don't understand how hard it is. If you do get released and you put like everything into it, you've got to be a mentally tough person to, to be able to deal with that setback when, like I said, ever since I was growing up, I was always your Keegan Burton and you play for Sheffield United. And as soon as that title is taken away from you, that you can remember everyone associating like that with you since you can remember things. Mm-hmm. Like that being took away when you're so close to achieving it is something that is hard to deal with. And I, even myself, I found it hard to deal with. Like I remember that day when I when I got told that I weren't like so you get told like straight to your face like you're not good enough like there's there's, there's no there's not, it's not beating around the bush like you're not good enough to play for this club basically they're saying they try and sugarcoat it a little bit sometimes saying like oh you were you were this close or give you a reason as to why there's no there's no pathway to the first team but end of the day if you're good enough you're going to get the contract like mm-hmm. don't there's no point beating around the bush and some some guys find that difficult to to take like recently there's been the kid at Man City, is 17 years old, Jeremy Winston, I think his name is. Yeah, he been released at 17, and obviously he's he's dealt with it really like bad mentally, and he's took his own life. So to think about that, there is a safety net for us in terms of helping us get to the next step. But I think the reason it's people don't really 
think about it too much here is because you've got the safety net of the degree. You've always got that plan B where people in England, if you haven't, you haven't really got that safety net of like that solid foundational education. Yeah, yeah. Once it's done, it's done. Yeah, you've got to make you've got to make your own steps. So say if, like you've got to make your own steps when you've been released. Like I've got to decide like, oh, I'm going out to America. I'll say this to the PFA, LFE, then they help you. You, if you're sat there not knowing what to do and don't reach out, you're gonna struggle finding that that help from them to like I, I honestly I advise every player who's been released in England to just contact them in, in general. If you feel like even mental stuff, like if if you reach out and you're not mentally like feeling good, there's they'll help you deal with that as well, as long as well as all the other options and avenues you can take. And that's something that. I don't feel like we often acknowledge in American soccer circles is that we do have this built-in plan B in our soccer pyramid. If you don't make it in an MLS academy, it's pretty much just assumed that you're going to get recruited and you're going to go play college soccer. Like that's your next step. At the very least. At the very least. Like, or some USL championship side wants you and you try to like go pro all the way through. Right. But like, it's just assumed that you're going to go do that. And then because it's assumed that you're going to go do that, you're automatically, without having to make the choice, going to get your degree. And you're going to automatically earn that backup plan, which just isn't present in other countries. And which is why people deal really in really tough ways with being released in England. And and you hear some of these tragic stories, which are, are really, really heartbreaking. And like Keegan says, people just, you have to take more initiative there. And I'm not saying that, obviously, like when you get some bad news here, you get released from somewhere or something doesn't work out or you didn't get into an academy or whatever, you still have to take initiative, right? Like you still have to like apply to the schools and like contact the coaches and like, it's still on you. It's not like people are just like walking up to your doorstep, but it's more built in, much more built in here than it is in England. Yeah, exactly. It's not something that you have to go and research. You don't have to go and call these organizations to explain it to you. It's just part of the culture here. Right. Like Keegan had to get involved with Pass for Soccer. They came and gave a presentation. He had to reach out to them. He had to reach out to his PFA. He had to figure out, I mean, he had to move to an entirely different country for his plan B, right? That for us, it was just like go to the college down the street and play for them. It's just a much different thing. So yeah, yeah, definitely. And you know, I, I think it's something that that we seriously have to to understand. And and for me, like I, I stepped away from playing soccer after my freshman year. I had the opportunity to make that decision for for myself. Yeah, it was difficult. Mm-hmm. It was something that I still struggle with. You know, two years on, of just having to accept that fact of what if and i wish some things maybe were different but at the end of the day you know i made that decision without having to have some serious serious pressure like that 17 year old kid at man city did uh, on his shoulders because i was like i have already made a good friend i've already have a good friend group uh, that i've made i have a degree that i'm working on and you know that's my path like i i I, it wasn't like oh man if what am i going to do when i'm stepping down from the team like what do i do next it's yeah okay i'm stepping down from the team what does my social life look like next? you know that that was my problem you know i was just worried about you know my identity of being a soccer player with my friends not necessarily you know dropping out of college or, or anything like that because i knew i had that avenue paid for myself yeah um so so yeah, I, I definitely think that that's one of the things that 
I think Americans can learn about England and, and vice versa in terms of the system. You know, we, we shouldn't hate what we have already inherently built in our system. Yeah. It's something that we should I, embrace and, and celebrate and, you know, maybe change our perspective and not put so much pressure on the college system to create professionals and yeah. get paid in, in that sense. Like, yeah, I think this is what the NCAA wants. It's their yeah. initiative of having student athletes. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I wouldn't want to get paid for, for my time, you know, at, at Queens because I, I really enjoyed it. it it's yeah. taught me a lot and it's provided me opportunities and a degree at the very least at a great school. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I think the ultimate takeaway here is that we're not arguing that you can't develop a professional player through the college pathway. You absolutely can. You can see it with Clay. He went to even a Division II school in Bowman Abbey that had never developed a professional player in their program history, as he told us. He was the first player to turn professional, and he still made it work. People are going to take their circumstances and make it work if it means that much to them and if they have the talent and the ability and and the right people around them. So we're not arguing that it can't produce professional players. What we're arguing and what our takeaway is is that college soccer should not be player develop a player development first platform. No. It should be a human development platform where you get to play soccer too. And you can make of it what you will. You can come in and you want it obviously to be a good um, safe and healthy environment, right? Which is probably why we want the season extended. Yeah. And and that has the knock-on effect of being better for professional development, but ultimately we want college soccer to be something that is a great platform for people of all different levels. People can come in after getting released from MLS Academy and use it solely as a professional development pathway to get back to MLS or get to get back to USL Championship. People like me and you can come in on the other end of that spectrum with no professional aspirational goals, but an ability to compete at a higher level in the sport that we love while also pursuing the other goals that are important to us and giving us the flexibility to be able to do that. And and that's what I think college soccer should be. I think it's an amazing thing and it's an amazing part of the American soccer landscape. Mm -hmm. And of course it's broken in many ways, which which we discussed and it needs reform, but we need to balance those ideas of reform with just human elements yeah i mean it's not a reform of identity or a reform of purpose it's a reform of system and season and how to make it a little bit safer and more sustainable yeah because i don't think that like you said we're not trying to argue that it should be for professional making primarily that's not the majority of the people that are in that pool right and and so i think dj had a really good point is like if you know, there is a college program for any player, you know, maybe, maybe that was clay that said it, but, um, like if you look and do your homework, you can find a program that fits perfectly for you and your aspirations. Clay had to go out of his way and pretty much grill his coach and be like, Hey, I want to be a professional. Yeah. Can you make that a reality? Because I'm willing to do that. And if you're upfront and honest about what you want and, and knowing yourself in, in that facet, you can make it whatever you want. And that's the beautiful part about what it, what it already is and, and should continue being moving forward. Absolutely. And I think that is the biggest takeaway here for us from this, um, special first interviews in what the FC history, 
shaping up to be the longest episode in what the FC history. So if you're still listening at this point, congratulations. Thank you. Go grab a beer to congratulate yourself for making it through the entire episode. (laughs) And on that note, I am Will Martin. And I'm Matt McCutcheon. And this is What the FC.